Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Ooh, we've been away a couple weeks. It's called Summer Baby. Uh, this week we are talking to the editor of the new book, Football in the Middle East, State, Society, and the Beautiful Game by Professor Abdullah Al-Aryan. I'm so excited to speak to him, I can't even tell you. Also, I've got some choice words about Serena Williams, the true GOAT, as she winds up her career. I think she has had the greatest career in the history of sports, and I'm going to make that case. I've also got some more choice words. You could call them, you know what what we should call this? We should call this the just stand up and just sit down together. All about the NBA's decision to not play games on Election Day, November 8th, in order to help get out the vote. This is going to be a great show. I'm so glad to be back. But first, you know, let's talk to Professor Abdullah Alarian. All right, uh, Professor Abdullah Alarian, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So why this book? Let's start with that. I mean, you are a professor who teaches a wide variety of subjects. You've written books in the past about uh, issues that uh, have to do with Islam in the Middle East. Uh, in Egypt, of course. I mean, you've just written about a lot of eclectic subjects. Why did you focus in on football in the Middle East? Well, I think on one level, obviously, when when you know examining like how this project came together, a lot of it was was very much in response to kind of the recent interest and the uptick of in interest globally around the question of football in the Middle East and looking specifically around the question of the Qatar World Cup. So now, like all of, you know, the global audiences will be, uh, looking toward toward Qatar in just a few months from now. And so I think there was some kind of uh, impetus there. But I think part of what we did in approaching this, and so this is just to, to give a little bit of background on the project, um, this was a research initiative by the Center for International Regional Studies, which is based here at the Georgetown campus in, in Qatar. Um, and, you know, they, they decided to make this one of their kind of tentpole uh, research projects begin uh, going back to 2019. So it's been three years in the making where they kind of brought together a collection of scholars to sort of sit around the table and, and kind of discuss the various uh, important longstanding kind of research questions. And so I think part of the, as an entry point, obviously the World Cup was very much on people's minds, but I think part of what this project actually goes to do is to try to, uh, you know, just get the word out there as far as how we, um, you know, tend to neglect the historical development of the game in the region and see it so much as a recent development, right? That, that we, when we think of football in the Middle East, we see it very much as kind of just a byproduct of the mass commodification and the commercialization and the globalization of the game and sort of, you know, a, a um, consequence of putting so much money into football and kind of having that be the thing that dictates uh, the course of the game. We see it, of course, not just with the World Cup, but we see it with the purchase of all of these, you know, high-powered European clubs, whether, you know, PSG or Manchester City, um, or more recently, of course, Newcastle in, in England. And so there's this, this sense that this is really all there is to the question of football in the Middle East. And so part of what this project was trying to do is to actually take this question a lot deeper and to kind of go back uh, to this question historically, thinking about the development of the game, not just as a, as a sort of a sport in its own right, but how it's also intertwined with so many of the kind of political, cultural, social and economic developments over the course of the last century. Mm. Um, so let's talk real quick about the Qatar World Cup. Uh, 
what it's going to be an entry point clearly for the Western media to speak about uh, football or soccer uh, in the Middle East. Uh, what what do you want the discourse to look like and what are you concerned the discourse is going to look like? Well, I mean, I think obviously from the second that that announcement was made and here, you know, we, we go all the way back to 2010 and, it, and it's kind of actually surprising to think about, you know, no, these kinds of announcements are never made this far in advance. But FIFA announced in 2010 that the 2022 World Cup would take place in Qatar. And so for the last 12 years, there's been an incredible amount of scrutiny. Um, I would argue rightly so on a number of, of questions having to do with things like, uh, you know, migrant labor conditions here. Um, the sustainability question, a lot of other kind of bigger questions, even things having to do with the calendar, of course, having switched from a summer World Cup, a summer tournament to a winter tournament now, um, that all of these are valid questions to be asked. But I think the way that a lot of the, the conversations have unfolded um, have kind of left a little bit to be desired in terms of, um, you know, having a more impactful outcome. Um, on the ground, right? Working with kind of local civil society, trying to understand the local political, social, cultural context in which a lot of these developments are taking place. And also seeing what's happening with this World Cup uh, as being an extension of a, a much, much deeper problem as far as kind of global mega events, sporting mega events go. I mean, since that announcement, we've had, um, you know, two other World Cups that um, face some amount of scrutiny, but I would argue nowhere near the amount of scrutiny that we've had in Qatar. And that's not to say that Brazil or Russia um, did not exhibit similar kinds of questions in terms of, you know, the, the kinds of things that happen. I know you were you were in Brazil and, and you've written a lot about this, Dave, so you know a lot about, you know, this question, but it certainly didn't get the kind of global media's attention in terms of what was happening in Brazil. Um, and then, of course, Russia, I thought, got almost no real coverage in terms of any kind of criticism of, of the way that that tournament was handled. Um, and again, that's not to say that, you know, there's there's a kind of singling out, but certainly there's a degree of Orientalist kind of outlook in the way that this, this these kinds of questions have been looked at in terms of, you know, this country not having a footballing history. Well, that's true of most countries in the world, really, that don't have uh, as strong of a background in terms of hosting tournaments and things of that sort. And, you know, we, we didn't really hear that as much when uh, Korea and Japan were hosting those tournaments back then. Um, and at the same time, I think there has been an opportunity here to, to think through um, really, uh, you know, how to approach the question of the kafala system, which is the sponsorship system around which migrant labor is organized um, in not just in Qatar, but across the entire Gulf region in particular. And so, there have been some, I would say, encouraging uh, steps in those directions. The ILO, of course, has an office here, the International Labor Organization, um, and there have been a lot of promises made, but there's still a lot to, left to be desired in terms of actual uh, outcomes and actual products of the shifts and policies. And I think there's also a concern about what happens going forward, right? Once the eyes of the world shift away from this tournament, are a lot of these policies that have been announced going to kind of remain in effect. I think we've just seen reports this week that a, a, a group of workers who have protested um, not getting their wages um, were detained. And there's all kinds of questions about um, not just the state and its responsibility, but again, kind of expanding the focus to some of these multinational corporations that are very much at the heart of um, the migrant labor question here. Uh, so I would say there's, there are a lot of things to to kind of unpack as far as the Qatar World Cup is concerned. Um, and some of those, I think, have been really quite valid. And others, I thought, have, have been kind of 
um, not very well informed and certainly have not been in touch with the, the kind of labor organizing that's been done around here. I mean, there are a number of human rights organization and labor right organizations that are based here that, um, you know, tend to be kind of overlooked in, in the kind of coverage that's happened. Mm. Now, to, I don't want to keep the focus of this completely on Qatar, but when when, when you look across the Middle East and you, you, you think about what countries would be would have been best to host the World Cup. What countries come to mind that not only have infrastructure, but also the soccer history, the local fan base, uh, to to have really made it, you know, a celebration of the region, and can Qatar almost, by definition, not fulfill that task? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of being able to to actually afford putting on the tournament, and we know, of course, that there's the complete massive economic toll that these these mega events have on on local economies. And, you know, there's there are a lot of arguments that some have tried to make that it's actually beneficial economically in the long term. I think a lot of that has actually been debunked. And so I would hesitate to say, you know, countries like you know, Egypt or Morocco or Algeria that have a very rich footballing history that goes all the way back, you know, to to early 20th century, um, have massive support in terms of their their fans there um, and would have loved and, and have even competed. Right. I mean, we have a number of North African uh, teams, especially that are going to be competing at this World Cup um, that would love to have that opportunity to host. But uh, at the same time, I don't wish that on any country given the kind of economic toll that it takes. But in terms of just sheer footballing history and clout, I think you would have to look at the North African states. You'd have to look at Turkey, of course, which technically is considered part of Europe, but is certainly very much part of the Middle East as well. Um, you know, there, there are big questions, of course, given Iran, uh, the fact that it's competed in a number of these tournaments. And this year it's going to be facing off against England, against the U.S., uh, and against Wales, which will be a very interesting, uh, interesting set of matchups there. I mean, <clears throat> it, it's worth for, for my listeners for you to speak just for a quick second about the history of football in the Middle East. What's the misconception and what's the reality? Yeah, I think the misconception is the fact that, again, it's a recent import, right? It's just this thing of, well, a bunch of countries that kind of struck gold with with their um, you know, oil revenues going back to, you know, 70s and 80s and beyond have just decided to kind of diversify their their investments. And so they've decided to pour all this money into buying tournaments and buying clubs in Europe and, and you know, dictating the transfer market. And on occasion, you'll hear about, you know, some some feel good stories about someone like Riyad Mahrez, um, who was the the first Algerian named the best player in the Premier League a few years ago, and of course more recently the the just um, complete rise of Mo Salah in the last few years. So those are the kinds of stories people associate. But I think people don't realize that that the the game itself has had such a long history that goes back to colonial times. Initially, it was introduced under colonialism as a way to actually win over local elites it was kind of seen as a, as a disciplining mechanism right that you you create these kind of properly obedient individuals as i think they refer to them in one of the texts that i cite in in the um, in the introduction to the book um, and then over time that actually becomes then internalized by a lot of nationalist elites who then say well now that we're playing the sport and we're actually show, showcasing that we can organize clubs and leagues and tournaments, that this is part of the case made for independence during the period when they were actually fighting for their independence. And then you have 
um, even more extreme cases like that of Algeria, when the FLN, which was fighting a revolutionary war um, in the 1950s and, and early 60s, um, even organized its own travel team. So they, they put together a team of revolutionaries who went around the world. It was part of their way to kind of um, spread the word about the Algerian revolution in part by, by playing friendly matches with, with clubs, with national teams um, around the region and, and really around the world. And then over time, you see that the game both on the one hand develops very much as embedded in the kind of local cultures of all of the different countries in the region, um, but also plays a kind of important uh, political role as well, because you see this kind of competition between popular movements who refer to their um, you know, allegiances to their clubs, to their teams um, in the course of popular revolutions. And at the same time, as I write in uh, the second chapter of the book, I look at the way that authoritarian regimes instrumentalize football as a way to legitimize themselves, an effort that largely fails, but one that certainly I think has um, has been you know, part and parcel of the way that a lot of the dictatorships in the region have, have hoped to gain popularity, to legitimize themselves. And of course, as we've seen, to sports wash away a lot of their, their worst abuses. And of course, this is, you know, this brings to mind more recently, Saudi Arabia trying to host all of these um, cup tournaments coming from the Spanish league and the Italian league. And of course, more recently buying Newcastle in England. And so there's, there are major attempts to try to instrumentalize football to both support dictatorships and at the same time as part of the mobilizations um, in the popular revolutions, especially, of course, as we saw in the Arab uprisings going back 2010, 2011. Yes, and that's actually where I wanted to take it next, the Arab uprisings of 2010 and 2011. Uh, football clubs, fan clubs, even some of the players themselves uh, took part in that uprising. Uh, did that, first of all, surprise you? to see the intervention of football culture in the uprisings themselves. And are some of the, uh, the, the moneyed elites in these countries, um, you think they're playing with fire a little bit when they promote and uphold the, uh, the culture of football? Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the one hand, uh, there wasn't really a kind of a, a directed top-down approach. I think what, what ended up happening in a lot of those revolutionary uh, movements was the fact that people didn't really have alternative modes of organization. I mean, you're talking about contexts in Egypt and in Tunisia and more recently in Algeria and other countries where civil society has been so decimated by extreme authoritarian behavior. Yes, you have you know NGOs and opposition parties, but none of them are kind of formally recognized um, in a lot of these contexts. And so one of the few ways that people could actually just get together and mobilize and sit around and, and have conversations about the state of their countries was largely around cultural activities. And so this involved things, you know, like music and and um, and different kinds of sports, but especially football. I think that really took center stage because of just how deeply ingrained the game is, um, the national leagues. You know, when you have thousands of people gathering in stadiums, it's one of the few safe ways for people to congregate until the revolutions actually took place, right? That you wouldn't really have mass protest movements that didn't get met with state violence, except in the case of people kind of getting together in stadiums and sometimes their chance for their clubs or for their teams would turn political and they would actually be directed toward things like police brutality or, or you know, the politicians corruption um, or to a number of the kind of economic grievances that they had. And so this becomes a mode that then as the uprisings unfold, 
gets instrumentalized in that kind of way. So you start to see a number of these, they call them ultra groups. So so these these kind of fan groups get together. And in many cases, in places like Tahrir Square and other places, um, that they actually end up holding the line when when the police forces come. And they, they very proudly boasted about the fact that this comes from years of, of experience of fighting against you know, security forces and police forces in the course of their, their protests or um, the crackdowns in stadiums and things like that. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that the moment that Egypt, for instance, underwent a military coup in 2013 that kind of completely upended uh, this brief revolutionary moment that that football fans and stadiums was banned immediately, uh, or actually even before that, and then it has remained in effect more or less um, until 2017. And even up till now, we see that these these fan groups have all continued to be banned and to face a permanent ban um, by this regime. And I think that this shows the fact that you know there there is a concern that people are finding other ways to move and other ways to mobilize and it's around their football and culture and in terms of the actual elites i think some of them probably rode the wave when they thought that it was a popular thing to do and it was quite safe but you certainly don't see that anymore so you don't see you know a player like mo salah for instance is never going to to actually speak out against any of the kind of brutalities that are happening in egypt and is is much more likely to stay silent uh, about the the kind of human rights situation there as a means of kind of you know securing his own uh, his his own future really with the national team, whereas you have someone like Mohamed Abu Tureka, who's kind of a legend in Egyptian football. He won, I think, at least uh, I think he won three African Cups, um, but he's he's been retired for some time, and he was kind of an outspoken supporter of the um, of the president who was elected during the revolution, Mohamed Morsi. So since then. The regime, um, you know, has has kind of put him on a on a number of watch lists. They've seized his assets, closed his accounts, um, and he's been living in exile ever since for having been outspoken during the revolution. Wow! And, and so, for folks who don't realize this, Abu Treka was is, you know, is 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 the LeBron of soccer, uh, of football in, in Egypt, and like the idea that they seized his assets put him on a watch list, made him flee the country. I mean, I don't think people realize the the impact of that, of what that has on consciousness. I mean, in terms of, I guess, also making people fearful of standing up for the regime. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the kind of the level of the crackdown has been so severe that that we haven't seen anything like the protests that, um, that many of us will remember going back, you know, to 2011, 2012. Um, Algeria had a much more recent, um, you know, uh, revolutionary movement a couple of years ago. And so there's a chapter in this book that looks specifically at the way that that football chants and artwork um, were incorporated in the course of that movement. So again, I mean, we, we see the kind of pattern repeating itself, except it's going kind of from country to country, especially after some of these crackdowns happen. Let's talk Israel-Palestine when we speak about it. Of Middle East, something that I've written about over the years, and I, I've really wanted to talk to you about this when we scheduled this interview, is the ways in which, in my opinion, and I, the Israeli state has targeted football institutions, particularly in Gaza, but uh, West Bank, Gaza, uh, from preventing teams from playing each other because of militarized checkpoints uh, to uh, the actual bombing of soccer, of football, I keep trying to check myself and say football, of football offices, football headquarters, football stadiums, 
uh, the targeting of individual players. Do you think that that, and Israel, of course, they deny that this has been some sort of uh, targeting of the institution of football. Now, I would love your opinion about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, those denials aside, all of the evidence points to the fact that this is very deliberate. It's very systematic. It's been, you know, firmly in place. Again, not not an exception to what we've seen. And so I think one of the ways that I think, uh, you know, the various authors who approach their contributions in this book have always tried to make the point that what we see with football is kind of holding a mirror up to the realities, both the good and the bad the ugly in the societies and in the in the context and the settings in which larger, broader things are happening. Right. And so I think in the case of, of um, you know, what's happening to Palestinian football in particular, there's no real, uh, you know, it's not exceptional, right, that this is an extension of the kind of apartheid like conditions that already exist for for all Palestinians. This is an extension of the ethnic cleansing that's been taking place going all the way back to uh, you know, 1948 and beyond. Um, this is an extension of the fact that, you know, there's there's a mass settlement movement that continues to be bolstered by a military occupation in the West Bank, or the fact that Gaza has been under siege um, for the better part of 15 years and has not, um, you know, had any kind of ability to, to kind of experience life as normal as we might, you know, consider in other places. And I think what this this points to um, is is kind of a, a complete dismantling of Palestinian civil society, of which, of course, sports, arts, everything is kind of considered to be an extension of that. And so in this case, you know, we've seen the stories. And again, Dave, you've done such an incredible job of reporting on this and kind of bringing it to audiences that don't otherwise follow these stories, um, which is to think about the fact that you have all of these Palestinian players who were deliberately targeted in their lower extremities, right? So, so you have an incredibly alarmingly high number of Palestinian players who've been shot in their legs, for instance, which which means that you know their ability to kind of recover and be able to continue to play um, is completely diminished. You have a Palestinian national team that can't get together for training or for matches for that matter, because you have people being essentially imprisoned in Gaza who can't move right the complete lack of mobility for players between the west bank and, and gaza or those for instance who are in exile who aren't allowed into uh either either territory um, by the israeli authorities and so i think this all points to kind of the bigger problems that we see but there certainly seems to be a recognition here that football does have a power to to you know bring people together and to be able to to kind of create a, a palestinian national culture civil society um, and, and in that sense, I think its decimation is is very much in line with with Israeli objectives to kind of continue to um, to undo all of uh, Palestinian society in that regard. I mean, it stands as a tremendous example uh, to really justify your entire book in this discourse, because if football was just sports and an irrelevancy to the broader political trends that we're seeing globally, then they wouldn't attack it. And when I say they, I'm talking Egypt to Israel, the Israeli state. I mean, why go after an Abu Treka, for example, if you didn't see the power that someone like that can possess? And I think your book does a tremendous job of, of laying that out. Uh, so congratulations. Got to say that. I mean, th this is tremendous. I got to ask you, you know, th there have been other uh, books, other texts written about 
uh, football in the Middle East. What do you think was missing in the general scholarship that made you want to take this on? Well, I think for me, again, I, I really enjoy the intersections. A lot of the work that you've done having to do with the, the sort of intersection of sports and politics, I think going even further than that in terms of a lot of a lot of the things that you've said, which is sports is politics, right? It's not even just that we're bringing two worlds together. It's two worlds that are already very much uh, completely intertwined. And that's something that often gets left out of those conversations as if it's sort of this separate sphere that exists in a bubble. And we know that that's, that's certainly not the case. I think that's the way that a lot of both sports journalism and uh, scholarship around sport has, has developed over a long period of time. And so I kind of wanted to sort of push those conversations forward as much as possible and to identify people who, who kind of think the same way or at least are, are looking at these same kinds of questions. Um, but again, even thinking beyond just the, the the explicitly political things and to see the fact that even things that exist in realms that we we think of purely as cultural or just purely as economic or social, um, that those things have political roots as well. And so I think, you know, again, just to, to talk a little bit about some of the incredible work that's done here, you know, there's a chapter in the text that looks specifically at the trivialization of women's football in Turkey. And so, again, you know, this this question of, of um, the women's game as being something that is just, you know, a question of not just a question of equality, but really thinking about it kind of in terms of the, the broader social issues that are raised by um, the game. And I think the author there makes a really good point. The fact that why is it that when we talk specifically about um, the women's game, there always seems to be some kind of bigger social agenda as opposed to just thinking about it purely in terms of it being a competition the way that we do with the men's game. And so in that sense, it's about kind of delinking some of the the sort of social agendas or political agendas and treating it the same way you would treat um, you know, the men's game. Or in, in the chapter that we have about Iranian um, you know, female fans trying to get into stadiums and the kinds of challenges that they faced uh, in the protest movements, a lot of them, of course, that, that have gotten some coverage, but really, again, trying to sort of put front and center the, the indigenous and, and internal attempts to try to challenge these things, as opposed to just seeing them as kind of an arm of, of Western foreign policies and things along those lines. So I think that there's there's a lot of work to be done to continue to, to, to think about these types of stories um, and dig a little bit deeper in terms of the backgrounds, the context, the, the settings that exist um, you know, there and, and kind of thinking about the way that it also intersects with other parts of the world. Um, and I think this is the other thing where I think, you know, we, we tend to believe in a Middle Eastern exceptionalism, that things that happen there are happening differently, that everything kind of comes back to, to you know, the culture um, or religion or something along those lines, as opposed to seeing that, that people are fighting a lot of these struggles um, in a kind of universal way. Um, in this region, the way that they are in, in Europe, in Latin America, and in the U.S. as well. Mm. Is there anything about this book that we're missing that you would like uh, my audience to know? Um, I, I think we t we touched on pretty much everything in terms of the themes, the okay. big questions. Yes. What's the, I'll ask you this. What's the future of women's soccer in the Middle East? Well, I mean, I think the, the interest is just really, really high. I mean, I see it among my students. I see it among, especially among younger people, um, both as fans and also as as players. And I think we're, we're likely to see a massive surge, um, in especially in terms of the, the competitiveness as well uh, going forward. Um, at, at the same time, of course, there are uh, some really serious impediments to it. 
Um, and there has to be much more of an investment um, coming, not just at the state level, but even, you know, kind of in terms of the the international support for the game and the way that we see the organization of, you know, the Euro tournament that was a, a huge success this past summer. Um, obviously, the Women's World Cup. It'd be, you know, it'd be nice to start seeing some some sides from this region kind of represented in in a in a kind of a global way. Um, absolutely. And something I ask everybody, Professor, I gotta know. You're working on this book. What's your music of choice? Uh, working on this book, music of choice. I mean, uh, I think you and I have a lot of similar tastes. I, I still take it back to a lot of, uh, I go back to Nas's Illmatic, which I feel like is good for for any, any purpose. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll go back to, to kind of 90s hip hop for me. <laughs> yeah, I've actually recently gotten into Nas's whole catalog. Realized yeah much of it I'd either ignored or just sort of listened to superficially and uh, I've been I've been very wowed so um, n- not that I want to make a free commercial for Apple music or anything but the Nas essentials on Apple music has been my go-to so great uh, like minds great minds okay. All that okay. great yeah <laughs> enjoying that a lot and of course run the jewels um, yeah just always, always good for getting work done or at least getting psyched to get work done. Yeah, absolutely. Abdullah Alarian, first, thank you so much uh, for get, putting this book together. The book is Football in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. Everybody should check it out. It is such an education. And thanks so much for appearing on the podcast. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much. I mean, I got to say just to people listening, it's like it's like reading this book is like going to the best possible class on sports and sociology. I mean, it just it just it it projects off the page. So they thank you again. And we'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast. The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about why Serena Williams has had the greatest career in sports history. Okay, look, as the clock turned to the year 2000, ESPN put out its rankings of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. The list was objectionable on several points. Babe Ruth ahead of Muhammad Ali, Secretariat, yes, the horse, ahead of Oscar Robertson, ahead of Lawrence Taylor. But the worst part about the list was that it was a sausage fest, the likes of which would shame the taste of Chicago. There were just five women in the top 50 with Chris Everett squeaking in at number 50. Of the five, only two were black women, the highest ranked being track and field legend Jackie Joyner-Kersey at 23. This arid landscape was the sports world that Serena Williams audaciously set out to rule. In the year 2000, Serena Williams was a 19-year-old tennis prodigy still playing in the shadow of big sister Venus. The standard belief of almost everyone 
save her father, Richard Williams, was that Serena would be Dom DiMaggio to Venus's Jolton Joe, a quality career, but always the familial afterthought. But Serena had already won the US Open at 17, and her confidence was running high. That momentum and that confidence would last another 22 years. Yes, she has had the greatest career in the history of professional sports. With Serena Williams set to retire after the forthcoming US Open, it is worth taking stock of the magnitude of what she has accomplished. When Serena Williams turned pro, Bill Clinton was in his first presidential term. The movie Toy Story was the number one box office hit of the year, and Serena was not much older than Toy Story's target audience. It was 1995 and she was just 14 years old. She made a whopping $250 in her first pro match against a terrific trivia answer by the name of Annie Miller. Now Serena's career ends 27 years later with 23 Grand Slam singles titles and 14 doubles titles to her name. Her career is older than five-time Wimbledon champion Bjorn Borg was when he retired at age 26. The length of Serena's dominance is rivaled historically only by people like geriatric quarterback Tom Brady or basketball king LeBron James. But her career accomplishments also dwarf those of Brady and James precisely because of what Serena had to overcome while also being unquestionably and undeniably herself. She showed the world that you don't have to get in where you fit in. You can fight to carve your own space and even when you lose, Serena's career was not a string of uninterrupted success. Better to go down as yourself than as someone trying to be somebody else. She persevered in situations that neither Brady nor James could understand. Winning the 2017 Australian Open while eight weeks pregnant, coming back to her sport after almost dying during childbirth because of blood clots, that's Serena. And of course, Serena Williams did not only survive the very white, often hostile world of tennis, she thrived. The amount of toxic distraction she had to confront on the road to greatness was probably exceeded only by names like Muhammad Ali, Jackie Robinson, and Jack Johnson. Her hard-fought success blasted caverns in the country club and inspired a new generation of young black girls to reach for a racket, believing that this sport is now for them too. And I gotta tell you, the public courts near my house are very much a beautiful testament to this. She also inspired the pen of the author and poet Claudia Rankin, who wrote of the two siblings, Serena and her big sister Venus brought to mind Zora Neale Hurston's I Feel Most Colored When I Am Thrown Against a White Background. Serena and Venus win sometimes, they lose sometimes, they've been booed and cheered, and through it all, and evident to all were those people who are enraged that they are there at all. Graphite against a sharp white background, end quote. The unimpeachable success against this all-white background in the tradition of Althea Gibson, Arthur Ashe, Yannick Noah, and Zena Garrison, but on a far grander scale, is precisely why Serena Williams and her body of work stand alone. That rather silly, staid list of the 20th century's greatest athletes contained not a hint of who was coming in like a whirlwind. Now Serena is the standard and everyone else is looking up. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. 
people got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, and both go to the NBA. Okay, look, there was a time in the not-too-distant past when the NBA was about as political as an episode of Saved by the Bell, meaning not at all. A league that once punished players for being political, hello, Craig Hodges, now sometimes gives the impression that it is a civic engagement organization where people happen to play basketball. Consider the news from NBA Commissioner Adam Silver this week that the league could be canceling all games on Election Day, November 8th, to encourage people to go vote. Perhaps even more significantly, all 30 teams will play the night before and encourage civic participation. As the league said on Tuesday, the scheduling decision came out of the NBA family's focus on promoting nonpartisan civic engagement and to encourage fans to make a planned vote during midterm elections. None of this should be too surprising. In 2020, when there was no COVID-19 vaccine and concerns about crowded polling places, the NBA allowed its arenas to be used as voting centers. During that pandemic year, as teams were playing in a bubble in Orlando, Florida, they also strongly encouraged their fans to register to vote. The NBA is led by Silver, now has an established commitment to not be just sports and to model the primacy of elections one of the few democracies on earth that doesn't make the day we cast our ballots a national holiday. But this push for nonpartisan political engagement is also an effort from Silver to regain control over the league's political messaging. The inability to keep any kind of wall between sports and politics has characterized Silver's tenure as NBA commissioner, which is a drastic departure from the way things were under his predecessor and mentor, the late David Stern. In many ways, Silver exemplifies the quote from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, that some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. This mandate to use his league as an instrument of civic engagement was thrust upon Silver almost as soon as he ascended to the top of the league in April 2014. One of his first tasks was responding to the leak of racist audio recordings of Donald Sterling, a stone-cold racist who was then the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. Players were preparing to boycott a playoff game in disgust, but Silver was able to placate the players and the union by doing something that Stern would have been loath to do, force Sterling to sell his beloved franchise and leave the sport. But that taste of politics and power only made a new generation of players more willing to be political, especially after the August 2014 killing of Michael the continued growth of the Black Lives Matter movement, which electrified a generation of NBA players from superstar LeBron James on down the bench. Silver, unlike some commissioners in other pro leagues, <laughs> Roger Goodell, didn't try to punish or blackball players for speaking out. Given that some of the biggest stars in the league were raising their voices, he really couldn't. Instead, from the beginning, he attempted to encourage and support players partly as a way 
to have some measure of control in how they presented this activist, anti-racist, and polarizing perspective. When the players did take the once unimaginable step of actually going on a wildcat strike during the 2020 playoffs in response to the Kenosha, Wisconsin police shooting of Jacob Blake, Silver not only canceled all games, but he immediately, with the help of some friends like Barack Obama, pushed players to take all their anger and all their radical energy and steer it away from work stoppages and polarizing protests and into voting advocacy. Not scheduling games on Election Day 2022 is best understood as a part of that effort. It also provides political cover for players who don't want to take controversial political stands, but still would like to present themselves as politically engaged. Silver has shown himself to be politically adept at navigating these stormy waters, but there have been times when he has looked like the pigeon who has landed on the back of a bucking bronco. Even if that pigeon is balanced on the wild horse, it shouldn't delude itself into thinking that it is steering the mighty steed. Nonpartisan political engagement and formally canceling games on election day is preferable to players canceling games themselves out of disgust over racism and police violence. The NBA is above all a multi-billion dollar global business with one eye always on public relations. The extent that this campaign encourages voting, what Silver's NBA is doing fits its pattern of engagement. But it should also be seen as a means to keep players from voicing even more dissent. And that's why it's the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Award this week. Hope that makes sense. Uh, One last thing before we call it a show. Uh, Just because we haven't done shows for several weeks, I just wanted to give a heartfelt shout out to the family of William Felton Russell, AKA Bill Russell, uh, particularly Bill Russell's uh, only daughter, Karen Kenyatta Russell, who's a terrific friend of the show. Uh, Just wanted to say, Bill Russell, rest in power. You were absolutely a giant. And certainly I mean that not just on the court, but off the court as well. For people who want to learn more about Bill Russell, I wrote a piece about him and appreciation for him. Uh, appreciation of him, I should say, uh, for The Nation magazine. Uh, rest in power, rest in peace. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Professor Abdullah Al-Aryan for joining us. His book is called Football in the Middle East. Uh, It's going to be absolutely fantastic if you pick it up. Trust me on that. Uh, For everybody out there listening, yo, mask up. I'm telling you. And please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.